As I said, I feel kind of like I'm back home uh, because what wasn't known when I was lined up for me to come speak was that years ago I planted the Free Church in Alexandria. And this goes like way back, late, late 80s and into the 90s, Lake Community Church. Uh, I was the first pastor there, and it was a privilege to get to be a part of that. I served on the North Central District Board, uh, went to Trinity, so a lot of different connections with the EFCA, and my heart still beats real strongly with what God is doing. And I'm so thrilled with what God is doing here at Lakewood as well. When we lived in Alexandria, one of the things you do when you've got kids and you're raising them in Minnesota is you find a place for them to be on ice, Right. And uh, our little daughter, Tovi, when she was about five years old, she was born in Alex, and when she was five years old, she wanted to take ice skating lessons. And so we got Tovi going and you know, outfitted, and she started taking lessons there in Alex. And then when God moved us to Chicago, we were living in the suburbs of Chicago. We were out in Algonquin, and we had to, you know, first thing you do is you got to find an ice skating rink. And so we found an ice skating rink about 20 minutes away in another suburb called Crystal Lake. And so I was taking Toby, she was about eight, o'clock, eight years old at the time, and I was taking Toby, or Heidi, my wife, would take Toby to her lessons. And early on, you know, you're standing outside the rink with the other parents, and you're watching a whole bunch of kids, you know, fall uh, out on the ice. And, uh, and I struck up a conversation with a gal next to me, and I said, well, you know, we just moved here from Minnesota. And she said, we moved from Minnesota two years ago. I said, well, that's, yeah, that's neat. And I said, uh, that's our eight-year-old daughter, Tovi, over there. She goes, we have an eight-year-old daughter. That's Margo over there. And I thought, well, that's, that's really cool. I said, we're Vikings fans. We're Vikings fans, you know, which I kind of suspected because Margo was wearing a Vikings coat, so I could pick her out pretty quick. And so I said, well, and we have a, a 12-year-old son, Robert. We have a 12-year-old son. So I thought, well, let's just go for broke here. And I said, we have a five-year-old daughter. We have a five-year-old daughter. So I was like, Wow. So anyway, it was kind of fascinating to, you know, the connections and, you know, the commonalities and such with Trish. Well, what ended up happening over the next number of weeks was, you know, Heidi or I would be bringing Toby, depending on our schedules, and then Trish or her husband Doug would be there. And so we'd always be kind of cross-connecting with each other. We were never all together. At Christmas time, they sent us a Christmas card, and we put it up on the fridge, and we wanted to be praying for them because there were just things that were shared in the course of conversation that indicated that they didn't yet have a a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. There was one point where Trish asked me if I was going to be there the next week or if Heidi would be, and I said, no, I've got something going on at church. And that way, it was just sort of a soft way of letting her know that there was that aspect of our lives that was rooted and grounded, uh, you know, spiritually in church. And so, you know, Heidi would come the next week and such. And then uh, there was a men's event at the church that I was part of, then a church in Chicago called Willow Creek. And uh, I was in charge of this thing, and it was a father-daughter, daddy-daughter barn bash kind of a thing. We had 670 dads and daughters coming to this thing, and we had, you know, barbecue chicken and line dancing and all kinds of fun things. And I invited Doug to come as my guest, and Doug agreed, and he came, and he had a blast. It was just a great time for he and his daughter and, you know, Toby and me to be there. And uh, then they invited us over to their home, and so we got over to their home, and all the kids just like took off. They scattered, you know, the guys and the girls and everything, and they all got along wonderfully. And then that summer, Doug and Trish invited us to come up for a weekend to their cabin in Wisconsin. So we went up there, and Doug is a, um, he's a competitive barefoot water skier. Like, he'll go off jumps barefoot and stuff, so he's really into it. He's got a barefoot boat with a special wake that it creates, and so he got me out on the boom barefooting, which has nothing to do with the story, but I just wanted to throw it in there. And uh, by the way, if you ever do that, make sure you're wearing a wetsuit or it's a bad experience. I'll just kind of leave it at that. So anyway, so we, we had a great time, and we had a, some opportunities to share Christ with them. 
and uh, along the way, and, and you know, it's not like they accepted Christ in the moment or anything, but we got, got to sow some seed. And one of the things that um, happened during the whole ice skating thing was that, um, and early on, Heidi and I were kind of concerned about what if they asked what I did for a living. Because when you're in a pastor and somebody asks what you do for a living, sometimes that can just like close the conversation right down, you know? And so uh, Heidi would come home or I'd come home and it'd be like, did they ask you? No, they didn't. Oh, good, good, good. You know, it's kind of like we got another week to, for them to like us. And, <laughs> and so finally it happened. And it happened when Doug was there with Heidi and it, a casual conversation. And he just said, say, he says, oh, what's Brad do for a living? And this is before the going to the cabin and stuff. He said, what's Brad do for a living? And Heidi kind of took a breath and she said, well, Brad works at Willow Creek. And she told him the ministries I was leading there. And Heidi describes it. She said that Doug just looked like a deer in the headlights because it's a pretty well-known church in that area. And his jaw, I guess, dropped. And his first words were, does Trish know? You know, <laughs> kind of like, has she been holding out on me on this thing? You know, what's, what's going on? And Heidi said, no, you know, we just don't lead with that because sometimes people treat us different or, you know, whatever. And he goes, oh, well, we're not like that. You know, Heidi was thinking, right. And they weren't, they weren't like that. And so we just built this great friendship. And as I said, we shared Christ with them, uh, you know, more than once. And I would love to say that they prayed to receive Christ and such, you know, while we were with them. They didn't. However, uh, in the years to come, they did. And they committed their lives to Jesus Christ and loved Jesus. In fact, I want to show you a picture here of Doug and Trish. That's them, obviously, on the left, and, and my wife, Heidi, and this is three weeks ago. We were in Old San Juan in Puerto Rico. Heidi and I have a marriage ministry called Build Your Marriage. And uh, we were doing a cruise uh, with people from, they were part of our ministry. And Doug and Trish came to celebrate their 30th. And I'll tell you something. Uh, try and hold it together here. Trish has been on staff at her church for nine years. Doug. Doug has been the worship leader for their men's retreats. And he and Trish have gone on multiple missions trips with their kids. And they love Jesus. And we are going to spend eternity with Doug and Trish. And it makes me so excited still, obviously, you know, to, to, to think of what God has done in their lives. And it all goes back to some intentionality that Heidi and I spent in building a relationship with some people that we really liked for redemptive potential possibly to take place in their lives. And what we're going to be studying, what we're going to be covering this morning is just, you know, something that can not only change the trajectory of your own life spiritually, but it can really impact the trajectory of somebody else's. And this evening, we're going to be picking up on this even further, and we're just going to be talking about some real practical ways that you can share Christ with the people that you care about, uh, much like we did with Doug and Trish. And I think, you know, what would happen if every single person in this room who is a Christ follower, if every single person in this room who says, I love Jesus, just determine that that we're going to do all that we can to pray for, because nothing happens of spiritual impact unless it's first being prayed, prayed about, to pray for and to reach out to the people that we know who need Jesus. Don't you think that would just rock Baxter and Brainerd? So we're going to take a few minutes, and we're going to take a look at a passage of the Bible where Jesus models this for us, and what a life looks like that has a heart and a passion for people who need Jesus, and the kinds of results that can happen when we take initiatives like this. But I want to start off, actually, if you have in your programs, there's an outline that you can follow along with, and you'll fill in the blanks and all that stuff. But at the very top is a verse from Philemon. Philemon doesn't have chapters, it's one chapter, and it's Philemon verse 6, and I want you to take a look at that either at the top of your notes or up here on the screen. And here's what Paul wrote. He said, I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective 
for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. The sharing of your faith. You know, what he's basically saying is, he's saying, when we aren't active in sharing our faith, then we don't fully understand or fully know every good thing that we have in our relationship with Jesus Christ. Because when we're sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with somebody, then the Holy Spirit in that moment is revealing to us and he's reinforcing to us all the good things that we have in Christ. We're verbalizing these things to somebody that we love and we care about or that we've been in contact with. We're verbalizing the goodness of Jesus Christ and it opens up our heart to the work of the Holy Spirit revealing to us even more of Christ. I mean, Jesus said in John 14, 21, he said, you know, if we continue to obey him, he's going to reveal more and more of himself to us. And where does that come true even more than when we're sharing our faith? So think about what the, the converse of that would be. I mean, when we're not active sharing our faith, you know, we may grow in our knowledge, but we're going to be shrinking in our zeal. We're going to be shrinking in our passion. We're going to be shrinking in our spiritual vitality because we lose the focus of what it is that Jesus said he came to do. And that was to seek and to save that which is lost. The main point of what we're covering this morning, and again, if you're taking notes, here it is, right here. We're in the center of God's will when we're reaching others in Jesus' name. So if you have a Bible with you, I'd like to have you open your Bibles, please, to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 9, verse 9. Uh, feel free to use the table of contents to find it, or if you've got it on a screen, maybe you've got the Bible app, uh, pull it up there. I'm going to be reading in the ESV translation. Uh, some people call that the extra spiritual version, but uh, ESV is what we're going to be using. And here's, the, here's sort of the setup for this. Jesus has been ministering, and sort of his base of operations has been in the town of Capernaum. And Capernaum's on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. And he's been going in and out of this town numerous times. I want to just show you on a map up here where Capernaum is. You can see it's right up here on the, up on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. And then I've got a couple of pictures, too, to show you. One is sort of an aerial overview. I'm visual, so it just helps me to visualize these things. Maybe you're that way, too. But that's sort of an aerial overview of the region that Jesus was in and of Capernaum there. And then there's a couple more shots here of the synagogue that was there when Jesus was there. And so, you know, you kind of picture the religious people being there and Jesus even being you know, in these courts in that synagogue. And so that's, that's all in Capernaum. So on his way in and out of town, Jesus and his disciples would go past this booth, and in this booth would be a guy who is the tax collector. And the tax collector was a Jew who was working on behalf of the Roman government. And what he would do, the tax collector would know the value of everything that came past him. He knew the value of the olive oil and the flax and the figs and, you know, the different articles of, you know, of fabric and the gold and everything that came by. He knew the value of it. And on behalf of the Roman government, he would extract a taxed, tax for that for that product going by and then he had the authority and centurions that would back him up he had the authority to tack on anywhere from 20 percent to 100 percent more for himself so that meant that you had a fellow jew who was basically extorting money from his own people to pad his own pockets so the tax collectors were hated by the other jews I mean, as far as the religious people were concerned, those who kind of filled the synagogues and such and led there, I mean, as far as they were concerned, these guys were equal to, to the, the public prostitutes, the prostitutes and anybody else who committed public sins. And so here you got Matthew, the tax collector, sitting in his booth. It's just another day of work for him. And he's extremely wealthy, extremely powerful. He's an outcast by choice. He's keeping a careful watch on the roadway for anything goes by that he could possibly tax and make some money off of as well. And along comes Jesus. Take a look with me just at verse 9 here. 
As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. The man that everybody ignored. The man that everybody despised. The man that nobody wanted to make eye contact with. The guy who's in a different economic status than anybody else. The man who's very, very powerful. Was extremely empty inside. And Jesus looked at him and Jesus called him and he came. I wonder how many people we potentially go by every day. Who are empty. And they just need to be invited into a relationship with Jesus Christ. So as we talk about what it means to build relationships with people needing Jesus, it all has to start in the heart. And, and so, you know, it can really just simply be this, and that is just ask God to open your eyes to see the world that Jesus sees. The sad truth is, actually, that the longer an average person is a Christian, their, their evangelistic potency, their heart for the lost, actually decreases. And we've done a study on this many years ago uh, in Chicago at Willow Creek. And I just want to show you this little chart, a uh, very simple one that I made up to illustrate what we had found. And that is, you know, here you've got evangelistic intensity, okay? And down here are the number of years a person is a Christian, and all these are approximations. But generally... When a person first becomes a Christ follower, they're excited about Jesus. They want to tell people about Jesus. They're thrilled with their faith. They know the life change that has happened for them. They've experienced the forgiveness of sins. They are pumped about Jesus. But somewhere around year four or so, that excitement starts to level off a little bit. And it stays leveled off for a couple of years. And then it starts to go down for the rest of their life. How is it that as followers of Jesus Christ, when we have tasted the goodness of Jesus, and we've experienced the richness of forgiveness, and we've experienced the power of the Holy Spirit present in our lives, and we've enjoyed the fellowship of community with other believers, how can it be that our passion to reach people for Jesus just kind of ebbs and flows away? You know, I get it. I mean, I mean, Jesus pulls us out of the muck and the mire of the sin that we were in and the life that we were in, and all of a sudden we're out of that and we're filled with joy, and now we're connected with other people who uh, love Jesus the way we love Jesus, and they love scriptures, and we're enjoying Bible study, and we're enjoying connection into small groups and serving in different ways, and you know, we're still you know, excited and passionate about people who don't know Jesus, but after time, we kind of get gathered into where we're, we're looking eyeball to eyeball with other believers, and when we're doing that, our backs are turned to the rest of the world, and it's not like an intentional hatred of the world, but it just sort of happens but in the course of his life jesus was always looking into the eyes of people who needed him what would happen if everybody here who's a follower of jesus christ just asked god to open our eyes and maybe you know today even before you leave this room you just simply breathe a little prayer and you say god open up my eyes to see the world the way that jesus sees it and then after church, you go out to lunch, you know, and instead of like seeing the server who just sort of brings stuff over to serve you, you're going, oh, that's, that's somebody that Jesus loves. Jesus died for her. Jesus died for him. Or you're going to Walmart, or you're going to Fleet Farm, or you're at Westgate Mall or something this week, and uh, maybe you're, you're running out to Costco, and, and, you know, the person's greeting you as you come in, welcome to Walmart, and you're going, Jesus loves that person. 
or you see your neighbors in the neighborhood. And something happens in our heart where it becomes more aligned with Christ's heart. And we start seeing the lostness and we see the pain and we see the emptiness and we see the purposelessness of people whose lives that don't have Jesus. And then you just do a heart check. You say, okay, so if these people matter so much to Jesus, do they matter to me? And, you know, the honest answer is only going to be known between you and, and Jesus. But if the honest answer is, you know what, somehow I have allowed my passion for people far from God to kind of slip away, you just say a breath and you ask God to just renew in you this spiritual vitality in this heart and this hunger for people who don't know Jesus. You just say, God, I'm so sorry. I've allowed my heart to get shriveled in this way. I'm so sorry. And I'm just resolving not to let this happen again. I mean, Jesus, he was talking to his disciples, and they were in a region, they were in Samaria, and the Samaritans, it's a longer thing to get in, than we're going to get into. But the, the, the Jews basically didn't want anything to do with the Samaritans. And there were these Samaritans in this town that were streaming out to see Jesus and to meet him. And as they're streaming out, Jesus says to his disciples, as the people are coming out, he says, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see the fields are white for harvest. Yesterday morning, Jeff Johnson was sharing about how just there are these movements happening uh, in reaching Muslims for Christ and how they're coming to Christ and churches being planted like no other time in history. And the same kind of movement can happen right here in Baxter and Brainerd. And you think about Jesus, he went to where Matthew was. He didn't sit in the synagogue and go, I wonder why Matthew isn't showing up. Matthew didn't feel like he was welcome there. He didn't wait for Matthew to initiate the relationship as Jesus went by the booth. He, you know, he didn't go, I wonder why Matthew doesn't ever call me over to him. It was Jesus who took the initiative to reach out to Matthew to draw him into relationship. And God wants us to be the initiators and he wants us to be the builders of relationships with redemptive purpose. And it all starts in the heart with asking God to just help us to see the world the way Jesus sees it. Which means then we seek opportunities to build loving and accepting relationships with people needing Jesus. Take a look with me at verse 10, just verse 10. Matthew writes, and as Jesus reclined at the table, and by the way, this is in Matthew's home, okay? And as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. Now, in the way that it's written in the translation I read, it says, and as, and if you have an NIV translation, it says while, but in the original language, the way that verse 10 begins, it literally uh, reads, and it came to pass. In other words, there was some passage of time between when Jesus called Matthew and when Jesus had dinner at Matthew's house. Didn't have to be a real long time, but there was some passage of time. And I just think about Matthew. I think about like the day that Jesus called him to follow him, how Matthew that night had to be at home and like he's sitting in bed or you know, sitting somewhere in his, in his home and he's thinking back on the day and how he, he went to work. It was a normal day. It was kind of a lifeless day just another day of getting money from people kind of like our jobs are sometimes and then jesus came by and jesus looked at him and jesus desired a relationship with him nobody ever wanted a relationship with him he 
and thought about how his life had just changed and then he starts thinking about his friends the other tax collectors and you know some of the prostitutes and the people that were sinners uh, according to the religious people and he thinks i i want them to meet jesus too you know i gotta get them connected with jesus and so he starts thinking well what could i do and and he decides he's gonna just have a dinner party just a dinner party and so he decides to have a dinner party and he invites Jesus and the disciples to come and all of his friends and fills up the house and has a great meal and everything. And of course, you've got the religious people who aren't very happy about this. But he is so excited about this because he wants to just get them all in a room and see what might happen. He's excited about Jesus. He basically plans a party with a purpose behind it. All goes back to that point of we're in the center of God's will when we're reaching people in Jesus' name. Back when we lived in Alex, uh, in Alexandria, there was a gal who was part of our church. Her name is Deb, and Deb would take her kids to school, and then she would stop by the local coffee shop. Uh, it was just along Main Street in Alexandria, and she would get coffee and sit at a table, and she generally was by herself. But at the table next to her were some other moms, and these gals, I mean, Deb could easily overhear the conversation and stuff. These gals were into New Age stuff and crystals and white witchcraft and all kinds of things. They're school moms. And Deb had a heart for them, and she actually started building a relationship with sort of the leader of that group, and they met, got together, you know, you know, after coffee time and things, and started connecting, and they realized that they really liked each other. They had a lot of things in common. They clearly didn't have anything spiritually in common, because Deb is an on-fire follower of Jesus, and this gal was definitely not that, but they really enjoyed each other. And so Deb had a, an idea, and she had a bunch of us praying about her idea, and one day she broached the idea with this other gal. She said, you know, yeah, we really like each other, don't we? And the other guy was like, absolutely, we like each other. And we have so many things in common. And the other guy was like, yeah, we do. We have a lot of things in common. And Deb thought, wouldn't it be kind of neat if, like, you got your friends together and I get my friends together and we just, like, get them all in a room and see if maybe they can have the same kind of friendship that we've been able to form. The other guy goes, that's a great idea. And so then Deb takes it the next step and says, well, you know, Christmas is just a couple of months away. Why don't we have a Christmas party and we could have it at my house because I've got room for everybody. Wonderful idea, the other gal says. And Deb said, okay, so you line up the food. And she said, I'll get Corey Peterson, who's a local Christian artist, and I'll have Corey come and play some background music while we're all meeting. And the gal goes, great idea. And then Deb says, and maybe at the end, since it's Christmas, I'll read the Christmas story. Oh, that's wonderful. You do that. So they did. The, the one gal, the new age gal, invited like 35 of her friends, and Deb invited 40 of hers, stacked the deck a little bit, and, um, and a lot of us were praying for the event, and I'd love to tell you, you know, that they all, you know, prayed to receive Christ that night and such, and, and I can't report that, but what I can tell you is, is that one lady saw people with the eyes of Jesus, and she took some initiative to build a relational environment where these women could cross-connect and build friendships with redemptive purpose down the road. I mean, you can do this around Super Bowl. You can do this around Christmas. You can do this around barbecuing. You can do this, the Case for Christ movie is coming out in April. You could just say, hey, I've got a faith-based movie coming out that I'm really interested in seeing. You want to go to it? My treat. And just see what happens. But it all goes back to some intentionality. I mean, people do want to know and follow Jesus. You did. And often we, we, we almost like, pre-select that they're not going to be interested in Jesus. Why would we think that? I just wonder what would happen if everybody here in this room just decided that we we're going to like turn the relational dial a couple of notches further with the people that we know that don't know Jesus.
In your outlines, there's um, under point two, there's an A, B, and C. A, B, and C are for you to write down the names of three people that God puts on your heart that may not have a relationship with Jesus. I know ultimately God knows the heart. I mean, I get that. But you think it could be a grandchild. It could be your children. It could be your children's friends. It could be somebody at work. It might be your neighbors. It might be somebody that you knew back in high school that you've been thinking about a lot. Yeah, I don't know. But to have the names of three people that you're committed to praying for, three people that you're going to intentionally kind of build relational inroads with, and then tonight, like I said, we're going to be talking about very practically what do you do when the opportunity is presented by God to tell them about Jesus? What do you say? We're going to be real practical about that. But what I want you to do, I'm going to say a prayer right now, and I'm just going to ask the Holy Spirit to reveal to you the names of three people that, you know, for now, you can always revise your list. It's, it's not like you're stuck with it. You can revise it. But for right now, the names of three people that you know, that God puts in your heart, that don't have a relationship with Christ. So let me just say a prayer and give you a moment to write that down. Heavenly Father, you know the people in our spheres of influence. You know the people that I've written down, the ones that I'm concerned about and burdened for. God, I just ask that your Holy Spirit right now would just reveal to each Christ follower in the room the names of three people that as far as we know don't have a relationship with Christ. Amen. So, I'm going to be quiet for just a moment and let you write down the names of three people. Got it? All right. As you ask God to open your eyes to see the world the way Jesus sees it, and as you build relationships with people needing Jesus, you do have to be ready for some measure of attack. You can just plan on it, that the enemy and others are going to be attacking. Take a look at verse 11 here in uh, Matthew chapter 9. Verse 11, it says, And when the Pharisees, these are the religious legalistic people, when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And I hate to say it, but there are going to be some people who are going to be, you know, even from within Christian ranks, that are going to take some shots at you for your efforts to reach people for Jesus Christ. Because you're kind of breaking out of the norm, you're breaking out of the status quo, and you're doing things that maybe you wouldn't normally have done in order to build relationships with people who need to know Jesus. And I really believe, frankly, I believe for Lakewood and for me and for you, I believe that you could be embarking on a, on a spiritual adventure like none other as you get on the front, front lines of sharing Christ with people who may not know Jesus. It can be an incredible opportunity. I've got a friend, his name is Craig Lucas, and Craig used to be a Harrier pilot. He was one of the top Harrier pilots. You know those, the Harrier jets are the ones that can take off going straight up. Uh, and the AV8B is what it's called, and, and, and he flew all kinds of missions, and he was in my men's ministry in Chicago, and Craig one day, he has these wild, passionate eyes, and he said, Brad, he said, I gotta tell you, he said, I've flown all kinds of missions in all kinds of places, things I can't tell you about, but I'll tell you something, being a Christ follower, telling people about Jesus is the most exciting thing I've ever done, you know, and I believe him, you know, and, uh, and, and, and I'm just telling you 
that this, this opportunity is great, but you can be a planning that there's going to be attack that comes. Let me take us back to Philemon 6 for just a moment. Again, here's what Paul wrote. Now take a look at it here on the screen. I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. You know, when churches start getting active, when individuals start getting active sharing Christ, there's going to be resistance. Sometimes it's going to come from other Christians who are going to question your motives or question why you're with those people or question what you're doing. And, and even as a church, I remember in one church that I was serving, and I'm just going to be that general about it, uh, the church had grown like 25% a year and just cool things happening. And originally when I got there, it was a very kind of white-collar, formalistic kind of a place. And over time, I mean, the evangelistic potential kept getting hotter and hotter, and we were reaching prostitutes and homeless people and drug dealers, and, and the, um, the makeup of the congregation was considerably different. And I kid you not, the person who was sort of the most revered uh, of the leadership in the church came up to me privately one day and just said with, with an intensity, we've got to stop the growth. We've got to stop the growth around here. We need to get our church organized and get things in place, and then we can grow again, but we've got to stop the growth. In another setting, that same leader said, we need these people who are coming here to go to churches that are with other people like them. I don't find that in here. But you're going to take hits from people. You can count on it. And you've got you to gotta plan on the fact there's going to be spiritual attack from the enemy as well. I mean, if I was the enemy and I was going to plan an all-out attack to keep the church from being effective, this whole thing we're talking about this morning and tonight about reaching people for Jesus is exactly at the bullseye of his target. I mean, his strategy is really simple. Basically, he's saying if I can, if I can get them complacent and self-satisfied, if I can get them focused on one another, if they're just you know, caring for each other and that's good, or if there's infighting taking place, they're not going to take any of my territory. For the enemy, anything that can create division will work. Anything that can create complacency will work. Anything that can create fear, and we'll talk about that this evening, but anything that can create fear works. Anything that creates self-focus, and especially anything that creates prayerlessness works. The Bible is very clear. For our, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. The book of Revelation talks about how the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows his time is short. He's not playing games. He wants to keep Lakewood. He wants to keep you from sharing your faith. He wants to keep you from talking about Jesus. He wants you to keep you from impacting the three names that came to your mind a moment ago. There's a spiritual battle at work here. Let me just kind of give you a picture of what to expect. I mean, you've prayed for your heart to be enlarged, and you've begun to build some relationships, and maybe you've even begun to strategize how you're going to be talking to them about Jesus and such. And then you hear this, this soft, serpent-like voice just whispering in your ear, just going, what if they ask you something you don't know the answer for? Why, you don't want that to happen? Look at your life. Your life is a mess. You don't, have the, you don't have the moral authority right now to talk about Jesus. Get your life cleaned up, and then maybe someday you can talk about Jesus. What if you start talking about Jesus, and you mess it up, and they go to hell instead of heaven? You don't want that. 
I've heard those voices when the enemy whispers those things. He wants to discourage us. He wants to dissuade us. He wants to neutralize us in our faith. And it's not going to happen. You resist the devil and he'll flee from you. You get strengthened, you get trained, you get empowered on the things that you need to know, but you just remember that Jesus died for every single person on your list. And you've got the Holy Spirit of God working through you. You are just the vessel communicating. It's the Holy Spirit working through you. It's the Holy Spirit speaking and drawing them. It's really ultimately just up to you to be faithful. It's up to God to do the drawing. All we have to do is open our mouth and speak and leave the rest up to him. That's why. It's critical to model and verbalize God's mercy as you've experienced it. Look at verses 12 and 13. So remember, the Pharisees are saying, why is your teacher do this? Verse 12, but when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. I mean, when you look at these verses, what Jesus is basically saying is, he's saying, look, you're spiritually healthy and they're not. So by your definition, you know, they're terminally ill and I have the cure. And I'm including myself in this. You know, as followers of Jesus Christ, we've got to reorient our lives to thinking and realizing that people are dying and going to a very real place called hell. And it's up to us to present to them the good news of Jesus Christ. And we don't have time to wait. There's one, buddy, one person, a pastor I know once said, time is short and hell is hot. Jesus said that he came to seek, like a heat-seeking missile, he came to seek and to save that which is lost. And we're in the center of God's will when we're reaching others for Jesus Christ. You know, just imagine a year from now, one, two, or three of the people that you wrote down attending either Lakewood or maybe attending you know, another Bible-believing church in their community taking communion and remembering what Christ has done for them on the cross. Celebrating the resurrected Lord at Easter. I think about Doug and Trish and I think about how their lives have been transformed through Jesus. They are so filled with the joy of the Lord. Again, going back to Philemon 6, I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is ours through Christ. You will grow in your faith. You'll mature in your relationship with Jesus Christ. You'll see more and more of Christ and grow in your intimacy in your relationship with Jesus Christ. And you'll experience breakthrough for spiritual vitality in your walk with Jesus. When you're sharing the good news of Jesus with the people that God has brought into your life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I do want to pray for each person here. Lord, you just take the number of people in this room, multiply it out by three, and that's a lot of people who don't yet know Jesus in our spheres of relationships and influence. And God, I want to ask right now that you would just help us to not just look at this as a you know, closing message in an outreach conference, but instead to look at this as a defining moment in our lives. When suddenly, instead of being on that downward trajectory, as a Christ follower, where our passion for those who are far from God sort of is ebbing and flowing away, that instead now your Holy Spirit has reached in and just reminded us and opened our eyes again to the redemptive realities and opportunities that are around us. I pray that a year from now, God, every person in this room would have stories to share about how 
They help somebody take their next step spiritually or maybe even help somebody take their step across the line of faith for your honor and for your glory and for your kingdom's sake. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone agreed and said, amen.